In order to differentiate yourself when you're young, I think you have to just be the absolute very best in a small, pick an area that you really feel you can be good because then you can differentiate yourself. Just anything that you can say, I can do this as well or better than anybody, rather than try to be too many things to too many people or to too many endeavors, because then you will be in a position to, shall we say, grow and to expand. If, you've, if you can perfect one particular area or product type, you, you can transfer that knowledge and that, let's call it process, to, to another, and you can grow yourself. But I think the mistake many people make is that they try to do too many things to, to, to learn too broadly. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded live on October 6th, at his office on storied Sand Hill Road in Menlo Park is a conversation with real estate legend Ned Speaker. Ned, who came out of the Trammell Crow organization, where he was then the youngest partner ever, and then started up and ran Crow's West Coast, formed his own company in 1987, took it public in 1993, and then sold it to Sam Zell's equity office at the Market Top in 2001. And they'd performed well through their life cycle, as one of Ned's former colleagues told me. If you'd invested in speaker properties at the 1993 IPO and held it through the sale, there was a 22.7% IRR over that eight-year hold period, best in the office sector and one of the tops in REITland. Ned and I talked a lot about their team and partnership-oriented corporate culture, first set at the Trammell Crow organization and then at speaker properties. I'm friends with many of his former executives. To a person, they speak wistfully and with reverence about those days, that team, that culture, and about Ned. Well before Ned sold Speaker Properties, he'd started up a company, Speaker Senior Development Partners, to develop large CCRC senior projects, the business where he still spends most of his time. We start our conversation talking about the dynamics of that business and how they fared through COVID. This interview with Ned is a continuation of our series of conversations with industry legends, which has included interviews with Sam Zell, Gerald Hines, Ron Terwilliger, Art Gensler, and others. A common theme in these legend conversations is partnership. These people built their businesses to scale based on the partnership model. Hire great folks, put them in charge of a region or a property type, let them do their things, support them, and then everyone shares in the wealth creation. That was the basis of the Trammell Crow model replicated again and again throughout the industry and the story once again told in this episode by Ned Speaker. It's interesting in our recruiting work at Terra Search Partners to work in this continuum with companies that are primarily based on the partnership model and others that have a more top-down corporate approach. Most companies find a balance between corporate and distributed function and you'll hear Ned and me get into it on that subject on the podcast. As we consult with clients to help them flex their corporate model through the discipline of our search practice, this tension between corporate and distributed function is one of those ever-evolving dynamics, idiosyncratic to each company as they continually adjust their models to meet their current and future goals. I hope that you're enjoying Leading Voices. I'll repeat my birthday wish from the last episode, Please share your favorite episodes with a friend, colleague, or mentee. This library of podcasts are out there to be shared, inspire, and inform people across the industry. And if you have some time, go back to the archives and pick through a few episodes you haven't heard yet. And if you have comments, advice, or guest suggestions, feel free to email me at matt at I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Ned Speaker. First of all, Ned Speaker, I am in your office here on Sand Hill Road, the famous Sand Hill Road, and I'm thrilled to be with you in person, live even during COVID, talking on Leading Voices. So thank you for coming to the podcast. My my pleasure. Today, we're going to talk really about two things. One, we're going to start with the present, and then we're going to go to the past and tell your story. Great. Because you're running a wonderful company that provides seniors housing. Correct. So talk about seniors housing first, and then we'll, we'll come to Speaker Properties and Office sure. and all that later on. Well, Speaker Property, excuse me, um, the, we call it Speaker Senior Development Partners, mm-hmm. which is a subsidiary of our uh, company. We uh, build, own, and operate seniors' communities. Uh, 
These communities are relatively large. They provide service to 800 to 1,600 residents. Mm -hmm. In effect, they are small cities uh, or villages, let's call them villages, because uh, we have uh, food service, recreation, health care, all sorts of services in the village, if you will. And our program is very simple. We invite people to buy in on an entrance fee model. They give us a substantial deposit, uh, which is basically partially refundable to them on their demise or to their estate Mm -hmm. on their demise. And then we agree to take care of them for life. So it's uh, it's also called life care. Or CCRC, same. Uh, well, Continuing Care Retirement working. Community. Yeah, and life care is the under the state's de- designation part mm-hmm. of the model because we agree to take care of them uh, no matter what happens to them from a housing standpoint. We don't take care of the doctor bills or the uh, hospital or an operation, but we, we, we agree to t- uh, keep a roof over their head. And that could mean nursing homes. So the continuum of care could be nursing or memory care alongside. And it starts with independent living. Our levels of care are independent living, Mm -hmm. assisted living, skilled nursing, memory care, and home care. Mm -hmm. So five five basic levels of service. Mm -hmm. And let's just make this real. First of all, how many of these communities do you have presently? Right now we have six open and operating Mm-hmm. We have two that are in the, let's call it entitlement approval stage. Mm-hmm. They're all in California, and there's a reason for that, but uh, I, don't, I can go into it if you wish. But we, um, I think, are probably the largest provider in the state doing this kind of service. Uh-huh. And what's the average entrance fee? I know it depends on the size of yeah, units uh, they yeah. buy. Yeah, but... you could get a studio for, say, 300000 one bedroom. Uh, the typical is a two bedroom for say about uh, f- five to eight hundred thousand, mm-hmm. and then a uh, you can get penthouses and townhomes for you know uh, upwards of a million or more. And this is living in semi-single family homes up to multi-family type properties. That well, they they're basically apartments, uh-huh. uh, yeah, uh, which house our our studios and our one bedrooms and two bedrooms. And then we have detached villas, we call them, and also townhomes. Mm-hmm. And why did you choose this version of seniors housing in this model versus just apartments or just nursing? And do you have any other properties in your world that are just yeah. nursing or whatever? First, we have no other properties. Our, uh, all we do is CCRCs. And the reason for that is I think, and we all think, uh, that that is the, shall we say, best solution for seniors. Mm -hmm. Because if you do a single product, let's say an assisted living or a skilled nursing, you're basically providing a partial solution Mm -hmm. to an immediate health issue. What we want to do is provide a total life solution for people who want to be able to plan Mm -hmm. and not have financial insecurity. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, and we've talked about this on the podcast before. My mom moved into a Sunrise right. CCRC in the Philadelphia area uh, called the Quadrangle, and her word was, I'm in the right place. And the moment she moved in, we all relaxed, as did she, about insecurity stuff. Yeah. And then the second moment after she moved in, she fell and had to be in nursing, but we knew it was covered. We didn't have to worry about getting—we got people in there, too, because right. we had to get home health care. but. Sure. It was the right place. Yeah. Well, and that's it. Uh, the right place is important for peace of mind. Mm-hmm. But we have two customers. So we have the resident and we have the resident's family. So it's, uh, it's very important to communicate, too, with the resident's family on a, on a uh, continuous basis. Uh-huh. And these are operationally intensive. So in some ways, you have th- two communities or three communities because the third are your employees, which is much more in-depth than anything you ever did back in the office business. Correct. Oh, absolutely. This is a management business. This is not a real estate business. It has a real estate component, but the major part of it is operating and in the, our employees are our biggest asset. So training and uh, nurturing, uh, taking care of our employees is huge because if you have happy employees, you'll have uh, happy uh, residents and customers. 
When we were considering hiring someone, I uh, or one of our other senior people would interview them and so on and so on. And then we had kind of a very exhaustive for them mm-hmm. <laughs> interview process because not only would the senior people interview someone, but we would have many of our uh, people in our company in- mm-hmm. interview them because I felt that they were the best culture preservers. Mm-hmm. And so if you could have someone who was a uh, maintenance person or let's call it a property manager mm-hmm. or whatever, they could detect whether that person would be, shall we say, open to our culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we didn't just hire someone with two or three senior people interviews. We would have maybe a half a dozen or more interviews from different places in the company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, that matters for culture. It's interesting. I, since I interview for a living, right. I don't trust myself. And mm-hmm. I don't trust my interview process. Mm-hmm. I trust multiple interviews with a client and multiple interviews that aren't interviews because interviewing means one thing, right. but walking a property or rolling up your sleeves and having a meeting with your future colleagues yes. and preparing for it, that tells a whole lot of different things. And sure. having drinks and dinner, you right. know, all those are data points. Right. Well, we would also meet if the uh, person were married. Mm -hmm. We'd ask if we could, say, get together with their spouse for a lunch or something, because that tells a lot about the person, too. It's true. How did you deal with COVID in your communities? Well, I mean, that's a book in itself. But let me give you an example employee-wise. So our employees during COVID had, of course, stresses at home. Mm-hmm. Their children were home because schools had been closed. They had very little time to shop, and they couldn't go shopping because of COVID right. restrictions. So what we did is we provided, for instance, care. We paid for care for their children. Mm-hmm. In other words, no cost to them. If they had a child at home, we would pay for that care. Mm-hmm. They would just submit us a bill at the end of the uh uh, the month and we or week or whatever it was and pay. We'd also provide shopping services for them, mm-hmm. grocery, dry cleaning. So we hired people to basically support our people. And that was an important part in retaining our employees, not just keeping them happy, but retaining them because if they couldn't work and feel, uh, let's call it liberated enough to come to the community, then they couldn't do their jobs. Right, because COVID interrupted all of their support systems, which then you had to replace or else you would have lost your support system at the property. Exactly. Wow. And were you ready from tracking and protocols? I mean, no one was ready, but maybe you were. So what? what, We weren't ready. No one was ready because one of the biggest problems with COVID, it was a moving target. Mm -hmm. Government would change what the restrictions are. One day you could have visitation. One day you could have meals in a community setting. Mm -hmm. For instance, we would in just a single community, and it depended on what the county you operated in. So let's say you were in San Diego County. They would mandate that uh, you could have no community dining. Mm -hmm. So let's say relatively overnight, we had to shift from feeding, pick a number, 800 people Mm -hmm. in a community setting Mm -hmm. to serving uh, meals in their apartments. That is a huge, let's call it, uh, inflection. <laughs> right. We had to take our people who were table servers our, uh, and figure out how to, in effect, get food to the, to the uh, residents. One of the biggest problems, you'll find this interesting, I think, is there was a huge shortage of disposable or non-disposable food containers. Right. Imagine, overnight, restaurants were doing all to-go food. Mm -hmm. We were doing a lot of to-go food, and the industry was just not prepared to provide styrofoam containers, or let's call it washable, reusable containers overnight. Right. So we had to figure out a way to do that. Uh And who is we in the case of that kind of thing? You must have like the general manager of the whole business or the COO or the someone who like wakes up and knowing how to do all these operational things? Well, we are what I call a decentralized business from an organizational standpoint, as we were in our real estate business. Mm -hmm. So each community runs on its own. Uh We have an executive director, 
we have a small hierarchy, on-site accounting. Right. So if, uh, for instance, a resident pays their bill, and if they have a problem, they can go right on-site to, to solve the situation. So we have on-site, and then we have a, uh, let's call it a central, that does a lot of the accounts payable, mm-hmm. a lot of the what I call we could functions, personnel, HR, et cetera, Mm -hmm. that we could do centrally more efficiently without disturbing the uh, operating autonomy of the uh, individual community. But did you have six executive directors or whatever the general managers called? Did you have six of them figuring out what to do about COVID or did you have someone here we had, we had both. We had, uh, obviously, we have, the central was a support group. So, uh, you know, rather than have six people try to figure out an independent situation, we had coordination from our central group in, uh, in Carlsbad. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And talk about how this affected marketing and residents wanting to come in, because the headlines at the beginning of COVID are these are dangerous places. Well, the problem was the headlines were these are dangerous places referred to a couple of what I call nursing homes, not CCRCs. But we're all painted with the same brush (laughs) from a, uh, unless you read the uh, between the lines. What happened initially in COVID and it it, uh, continued for about two to three months is we could, as one of my uh, uh, heads said, the uh, back door was opened, but mm-hmm. the front door was closed. <laughs> so people were passing away, right? And we couldn't replace them mm-hmm. because we couldn't ha- we couldn't show units, we couldn't show the community, right? We were we were basically stopped from basically any sort of interaction. So we designed a video program. We had remote, let's call it uh, Zooming type of presentations. But for three months, our occupancy, which was always in the high 90s, mm-hmm. went down to, say, 95, 94, 93, depending on the community. Mm-hmm. But that was for, say, three or four months. Then we figured out with testing that we could show units. There were people who wanted to move in. But we just couldn't accommodate them because of the, let's call it the uh, municipality's laws. But we finally figured out through testing Mm -hmm. that we could move people in. Mm -hmm. But that took three months, and so our occupancy dropped. Mm -hmm. We are back to, let's call it, stabilized now Mm -hmm. because we've figured it out, and we still have a very strong market and demand. That's great. And talk about your obligation as the owner of a CCRC. And I think some CCRC owners are nonprofits that have a different tenor of perpetuity and stewardship. But talk about that and how that works in your company and long-term what happens to these things in 20 years. Who owns them? Well, I consider the for-profit, let's call it nomenclature, a little bit disingenuous. Okay. Because those communities have to make money in order to shall we say, continue. Yep. If you don't make money, you're going to be out of business. And the, uh, let's call it profits or excess, goes to their, let's call it non-profit, like the Methodist something. They have a, they've set up a subsidiary. Right, different religious groups do exactly. this. Episcopalian, Methodist, and so on. Now, we are for-profit. Mm-hmm. And I tell people who ask me, why aren't you non-profit? I say, we do a better job being for-profit because we're motivated. If we don't do a good job, Mm -hmm. you won't be happy with what we're providing. Mm -hmm. So our for-profit is just as economical and just as uh, probably more efficient Mm -hmm. because we are there to provide a value-oriented service. Mm -hmm. But the question I'm asking is, slightly different, which is the question of long-term stewardship. I'm curious about stewardship and the long-term viability of these. Well, we have a contract with each of the residents, Mm -hmm. and the contract is secured by basically the ownership of the community. Mm -hmm. Basically, in our communities, we have zero debt. Mm -hmm. So here's a $400, $500 million asset cost-wise that we have no debt on. So the contract with the resident is secured by that ownership in the community. In succession for you or your company in the next generation, do these CCREs sell? Do they sell to stewards that are then 
have to be approved of as to their ownership capability to manage because you are managing on behalf of people in a very different way, making promises around actuarial things like nursing that one doesn't in a condo or one doesn't in a rental property? Well, first, let me give an aside. The governing body in the state is called the Department of Social Services. Uh And they basically approve our contracts, Uh our operations. Uh Residents can go to them and, let's call it, pose objections or issues. So the Department of Social Services is the governing body. And frankly, they over-govern because they want to be uh, perceived as a um, vigilant watchdog. Mm -hmm. Now, we have been doing this for well over 30 years. Right. We have had no problems with the Department of Social Services. We've never had an issue. And frankly, that's one of our uh, biggest assets because our residents are our best sales group. Of course. They bring in their friends. They bring in whatever. And the first thing we do when we get a uh, a new person is they say, well, tell us about yourselves. We say, no, go have lunch with a couple of residents. So that is our biggest sales service. So I don't know if I'm addressing your question, but we own the property, mm-hmm. the partnership. Mm-hmm. Myself, I'm a majority owner. Mm-hmm. I have partners that in the management team that own the what we call Class B partnerships. You said you've been doing this for 30 years. So We long- opened our first one in 1990 in Orange County. Wow. And you were doing that alongside speaker properties. Correct. Speaker time. properties. Uh, we didn't even, hadn't even gone public then. Uh-huh. We were still a private company. And I started the business, which is another interesting story. And then uh, we have done, as I say, six. These are very, very difficult communities to build and operate. Yes. I know the California landscape real estate wise pretty well. Mm-hmm. We need a minimum of, uh, say, 25 or 30 acres. Each of our communities is probably much larger than that in acreage. Mm-hmm. One is 200 acres. One might be 150 acres. But finding that kind of land mm-hmm. next to an urban or let's call it suburban area is not easy. Mm-hmm. And then getting it entitled is not easy. We have a community in Pleasanton we developed. We were in the entitlement phase for over 10 years. Mm. Before we knew we were going to get approval, we had over $10 million invested. That wasn't included the land. That was just in EIRs and in right. approval process. This is the story of development in California, not CCRCs. This well, is but CCRCs, story. you know, uh, all the governing bodies say, oh, we want CCRCs. Right. You know, they don't say we want shopping centers or whatever, but they're very, shall we call it, vocal about wanting CCRCs. But NIMBY takes over. And NIMBY's not nicer to you than they are They to- are nicer. At, but uh, they're still of, NIMBYs. Oh, yeah. One of the things we do is we we specialize in entitlement-impaired property. Uh-huh. So let's say a, a home builder, Pulte, or somebody came in and wanted to do a big subdivision. They got turned down. Right. We then are a, an ideal buyer for that land because our traffic is zero, uh, much, much less. We have no school pressure. We have no police uh, security issues. We are quiet et cetera, et cetera. So those are the kind of properties we end up buying after they've usually failed mm-hmm. through the normal process. Mm, I love it. They're quiet until our generation gets in. Last question about this, because I'm curious, is is I think as seniors, first of all, what's, what's the average age of someone moving in? Oh, well, let's say about 80. Okay, cool. That's young, actually, right? So that's younger than... And, it, you know, since we started, it used to be about 77 or 8. Uh-huh. Now it's 80. Yeah, so the two questions, then let's move on, because we I want to hear your story more generally about business. But um, when I was in this business years ago, the average age in a congregate care was like 86, and it was all women. Okay, see? but that's the average age, so they've entered in there. See, our, No, this was coming in. Coming in. Yeah. Well, congregate care is a higher that's uh, right. intensity use That's or, right. Uh, care. So you're able to market to people who still feel young oh, and they're the thinking about this stuff. The independent living is, uh, is uh, 80, 90% of our population. Right. And they're just thinking ahead. They're being a little bit insecure, but they do want, they do come in for the lifestyle versus fully the security. Well, it's not only the lifestyle, but it's the guarantee that they'll be taken care of at the same 
price. Right. So somebody comes in, they pay their monthly fee. If they need memory care, which is far more costly, their monthly fee does not go up. That's huge. My mom's deal, it, her CCRC, I think she got 30 days of nursing, and then all of a sudden it was Medicare, and we had to start. And Medicare doesn't, doesn't uh, meet the bill. Yeah. Well, let's come back to this at the end of the conversation, but I want to talk about you and your career and how you got into the fat part of your career, which would be speaker properties. Tell me, where did you grow up? College was Berkeley? Yeah, I was kinda... local. I grew up uh, locally in the Bay Area. Uh-huh. I uh, went to Berkeley. And uh, the quick story how I got into real estate is I was uh, president of my fraternity group in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And they were, of course, as most fraternities, uh, broke, always broke. Mm-hmm. And over the summer, I figured if I didn't figure out a way to raise some money, that we would not be able to open the doors the next fall. So I said, well, I'll, ra- I'll uh, figure out maybe I can rent the house. So I went and started cold calling. I didn't even know what cold calling was. Mm-hmm. But uh, at that time, and I came across a group called, a newly formed government group called the Peace Corps. And the Peace Corps was looking for a living and training facility. Long story short, I made a deal with them. I hired my fraternity brothers to do food service, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that was all a very big positive. We had enough money to open the doors. Uh But even better for me was an alum who was in real estate Uh observed this and said, boy, that's really quite clever of you. Uh, Have you ever thought about going into real estate when you graduated? I said, no, I haven't. He said, well, long story short, he was one of the senior people at Dillingham. Uh He hired me. And Dillingham was my first employer in real estate in Hawaii. And Dillingham, general contractor or an owner? What was Dillingham was general contractor, but they were also in the real estate field. And they had certain, the Wells Fargo building in San Francisco, they developed Mm -hmm. Alamoana Shopping Center. I then led the way to develop two properties uh, in California while I was with them. Uh, one called uh, Palo Alto Square and uh, just down the road on Page Mill, and the other uh, Walnut Creek Plaza, which is a big twin tower project in uh, Walnut Creek. Got it, got it. We've had a couple stories on leading voices. Sam Zelmos, famously, who got his start in real estate in college, buying and selling apartments or renting for people. So kind of same stuff. So how did you get from Dillingham to meet Trammell Crow? Was that the next step? Well, I was doing pretty well at Dillingham, and... uh, Trammell had a friend uh, in the uh, real estate, Caldwell Banker friend, and he said, I'm looking for a young guy. I don't have an office in the San Francisco in the Northern California, California area. I'd like to hire one. And he said, who is a potential kind of uh, up and comer? And this uh, person mentioned my name to Trammell. We had lunch with him and with Trammell when he was out here on his infrequent visits. Out here in Houston, in Honolulu or here? No, in San Francisco. Okay. In San Francisco, sorry. We got along fine. He said, come to Dallas. I came to Dallas over a weekend, Mm -hmm. and I was in Dallas about, I don't know, eight hours, 10 hours. He hired me on the spot. Mm -hmm. We negotiated, or not negotiated, he said, the deal is I'll pay you $18,000 a year, and you'll get 20% of the deal. I said, great. We shook hands. I went, and I probably didn't see him then for a few months. Hang on. What year was this? When was this? This was in 1970. Mm -hmm. So I was 25 years old, and I rented an apartment because I didn't want to rent office space. It was too expensive. And I operated out of a small apartment for the first, I think, three years of my partnership with him. Well, and he gives you a near Northern Cal. Is that what this was? Well, he it was it was unclear. Uh-huh. Just be my, my partner. Uh-huh. He had he had nothing in California or anywhere in the West Coast. Uh-huh. So I just started in California, and over time it grew to uh, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Wow! And talk about I'm just curious of the, either that first meeting or the beginning. Of course, in retrospect, you're with Trammell Crow and you're Ned Speaker. So the two thuds there and, and the kind of echoes in the, in the comment. But did you know what he was building? In, yes, you, it was warehouses. Mm-hmm. And the warehouse market here was okay, was pretty good. But I, I introduced uh, office buildings. I said, hey, we could, I had, because I'd done office buildings uh, with, at Dillingham, I said, I can really 
you know, do very well building, uh, developing office buildings. Mm -hmm. Hence, I started with office buildings and warehouses and flex space. R&D space was unheard of in Texas. Mm -hmm. And R&D space, Trammell was kind of didn't understand, which was basically a warehouse with high improvements in it for Silicon Valley. And this was the beginning, basically, 1970, early 70s, the beginning of, of the development of Silicon Valley. So I got in on that. Wow. And talk about the story. So think about the story of the Trammell Crow Company growing nationally. Think about the story of Silicon Valley growing and then think about growing your business because they all happen concurrently from germinated seats, right? Right. Well, it was just Trammell. I mean, Trammell was the hub of the wheel mm-hmm. and he had partners like me, Ron Twilliger, who you know in Atlanta, Bob Cresco in St. Louis, Alan Hamilton in Chicago. So he would basically select partners and they'd they'd uh, do their thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is an unfair question. What did he see in you that would say it could grow and build as it did? I have no idea, <laughs> but I'm thankful. I'm thankful. I mean, uh, it was a great run. Uh-huh. I was with Trammell um, 17 years, uh-huh. and uh, it was mutually profitable, Right. very profitable uh-huh. for him and for me. Over time, I went from 20% to more than half right. ownership, which I shared with my other partners who worked with me, uh-huh. and he he got basically an annuity because what happened was when I originally joined him, I didn't have the means to build buildings and develop, and he introduced to me a thing called his master lease. I don't know if you ever heard about that. A little bit. Talk about it. Okay. He would, we would build a building, and as security for the loan, he personally would master lease 100% the whole building back. Now, to a lender... It looked like a credit lease type of deal. Right. So we could go to the bank and get the financing to build the building Mm -hmm. on this master lease. Well, that worked for quite a while until the banks and the lenders started figuring out that this master lease was, let's call it, like toilet paper. Yes, I mean, true. <laughs> he was signing master leases <laughs> everywhere in the country, and more banks, as they started comparing notes, figured out that this master lease was, let's call it, not as secure as they thought. Mm-hmm. And uh, so by that time, though, I had become credible mm-hmm. and financially uh, stable, financially able to borrow just on my own mm-hmm. without a master lease. Mm-hmm. So we talked about three things of three trails at the same time. One is how Trammell Crow Company grew, and it did what it did here elsewhere using master lease and other techniques. And partners. Yeah. And partners to do it in each region. And then Silicon Valley was nation, so it started to grow. Talk it, a little it, bit about that, and well, then we'll it, talk about your company. Yeah, it grew dramatically, and I probably did a number of, you know, a dozen or two projects in Silicon Valley. But mm-hmm. I also did prop projects in uh, in Oregon, Washington. So uh, basically what I did is I would take on a, another partner mm-hmm. and I would say to, to that partner, okay, your area is going to be Silicon Valley North mm-hmm. and your area is going to be Portland, Oregon mm-hmm. and your area is going to be Seattle, Washington. And I would in effect take my ownership share right. and share it with them. Mm-hmm. And these are people that I'd either met uh, in the day-to-day business uh, or came across. And um, with Dennis Singleton, one of them, uh, offices uh, about 30 feet from where we're sitting. Right. And he and I have been together for, what, 50 years, mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. 50 years. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm very close to my old, to, to the old partners, see them, and we're uh, John Foster and others. Uh, so... Um, it's been a not only a great business situation, but a personal uh, additive to my life. Yeah, of course. And the concept of partners and partners beneath you works for everybody. Yeah. Now, you see, I'll correct you there, Matt. They're not beneath me. Mm. We don't have somebody works for somebody. Fair deal. Somebody works with. Mm-hmm. That's part of the culture. Uh-huh. We're a very flat organization. Uh-huh. We have different jobs. Right. Different responsibilities, but we're a flat organization. There's no boss in our organization. Got it. And of those folks, how many partners did you have who had geographies over time? Well, geographies and product types, I probably had eight or nine. Okay. Yeah. And then... You left Trammell Crow Company. So what? when was that? What happened and how did things change? 
Trammell in 1987 was getting uh, older. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to basically slow down a little and do other things. So he brought in this attorney guy who I didn't get along with. Mm. He tried to be, quote unquote, the boss. Right. And Trammell, you know, was always very egalitarian. He, he was never flexing his muscles. His philosophy was share the spoils and share the credit. Mm-hmm. And he always made you feel like you're a better person than you were. I mean, I, that's the one thing I always admire about Trammell. Well, the attorney came in and said, well, here's how we're going to run things. And here's a, and by the way, send all your money to Texas. And da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, they had a, uh, an annuity going. And here's this guy telling me to send the money and, and what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. And I just said, Trammell, I, I'm not going to go along with this. I think I should uh, withdraw from the partnership. Uh-huh. Now, 87 was also right after TEFRA, which was the SNL crisis was about right. to begin. Right. So there were changes in partnership laws at the same time as Those, those weren't the, an issue for us. That wasn't I mean, it. the real issue was the management of who was I going to interface with with Trammell. Trammell I saw rarely. Mm-hmm. When I saw Trammell, he would come out and he'd say, let's go to Gump's. I want to buy some jade or mm-hmm. let's do... This or less. I mean, it wasn't business-wise because the business was running, was running great. Right. So Trammell and I had more of a friendship, more uh-huh. of a father-son relationship. Right. And this new guy was not going to Two work. things happen, though, I think. One is that when you become stronger and more credible on your own, you need the central organization less. You need their economic We, we had our own central organization. So you were fine without him. So then it's hard for these organizations not to have people spin out when they become as self-sufficient right. as you had yeah. become. But, but I didn't spin out. And people said to me, why did you wait so long? You didn't mm-hmm. need Trammell. I said, well, I had an obligation to him. Mm-hmm. Basically, he or the organization caused me to say, uh, that's enough. But uh, I could have left uh, years earlier if I, if I had wanted to. Uh-huh. Any last story about Trammell, just to make it real, that besides Gump's, that one of the founders of our industry. So any other comments about what enabled him to grow such a strong company and actually the industry, invented the industry. He invented the partnership model and industry. It was his personality, the Uh strength of his personality. And I'd say one principle, sharing. Yeah. Not just sharing. He would give you or he would, we'd allocate a piece of the deal Mm -hmm. and we'd share that, never discussed it, but also he would credit wise. Mm -hmm. When we ever were in meetings or whatever, he always would, would make the me, a junior partner or whatever, feel like we were really, uh, as I say, better than we were. Yeah. And it was so, I had just a respect for the way he treated people. Uh huh. Uh huh. And you become that way, right? Well, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully, I've adopted what I call the positive parts of Trammell Crow. Yeah. So then you start your own company and then talk about the growth of that, talk about IPO, and then we're going to get to what it became before you sold the company. Right. Well, in 87, let's call it eight or nine partners, I uh, never forget, I sat down with my partners, I think it was on a Sunday, after I had met with Trammell and this guy, Don, anyway, this other, the new guy. met Don. And I said, "Uh, guys, here's the deal. I said, I'm going to leave. And you're welcome to join me or you're welcome to stay with the Crow organization. You, You decide. And I said, don't decide in a group. Come to me over the next week or so and decide what you want to do personally. Mm-hmm. And uh, to a person, all, let's call it nine partners, said, I want to stay with you. Mm-hmm. And so I went back to the, the guy and his group, and I mm-hmm. said, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to have to withdraw. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to, to work on whatever basis you want to uh, interface so you can continue an organization here. And uh, I did that. Mm-hmm. One of our nine partners decided to stay with and become the head of the Crow organization there. Mm-hmm. The other, let's call it myself and other eight, in effect, uh, formed speaker properties. Mm-hmm. And we, speaker properties, kept doing exactly what Trammell Crow was doing, but just under another name. Mm-hmm. And was both at Crow and then at Speaker, something's going to change here because Merchant Build may not be the theme going forward at some we point. We weren't merchant builders. Okay, talk about that. We were more long-term holds. 
when when I left Trammell, mm-hmm. we had uh, let's say a um, billion dollars worth of real estate, mm-hmm. of which I owned almost half, mm-hmm. and it was uh, me and my partners. Mm-hmm. And we were holders. We weren't sellers. Trammell, uh, a lot of the other partners chose to be merchant builder sellers. Right. But it was each partner's. But when we left, I said to Trammell or to the organization, and I said, I'll tell you what, we'll put a value on every property because you don't even know the properties. They couldn't find them with a roadmap. So I put a value on every property and I said, you choose mm-hmm. which ones you want. Mm-hmm. Pretty easy. Right. You choose, I'll take the rest, we'll just balance the books. Mm -hmm. It was a non-argumentative, no pain type of separation. Were there properties in process that needed to be finished up that therefore someone had to finish? Yeah, and the the one partner, the one Crow partner, who one of our partners who stayed with Crow, was part of that decision-making process. Mm -hmm. So it was an absolute, straightforward separation. (laughs) Whereas in other areas, when partners left, it became uh, somewhat acrimonious and, and legalistic. Right. I understand. It's interesting, though. One thing you've opened my eyes to is that it wasn't a merchant build before for you or after, but the rest of that organization, I think, was largely merchant build, and that has different dynamics to how you separate or move forward to do the business. Right. Okay. So talk about your company as it then developed, and how did it change in terms of day-to-day? How did it change in terms of culture and business model? Well, the culture didn't change because mm-hmm. I had established the culture, let's call it on behalf of the Trammell Crow Company, and we can discuss that if you wish, but that didn't change. Mm-hmm. The business model didn't change. We kept doing exactly what we were doing with Crow. Mm-hmm. Times were changing because you mentioned the SNL crisis. Banks and lenders were getting very conservative, they knocked on the door a lot of times and they said, you know, uh, by the way, we need this loan paid off, paid back. Right. And of course, in the, you know, two years earlier, they were saying, take more money, take more money. And now all of a sudden they wanted it back, mm-hmm. which was one of the reasons why we said, well, what's our alternative here? Mm-hmm. And we started setting up or discussing potentially going public mm-hmm. so we could pay off all of our bank debt. Mm-hmm. And get them off our backs mm-hmm. and have capital to take advantage of what we saw as a coming opportunity. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people couldn't pay the banks back. There were foreclosures and so on. So between 90, so then we went public, paid the banks off, did the IPO. Hang on before public. So yeah. just to put for our listeners to put kind of some time, time on this, you start in 87 the crash didn't really hit California till a little bit later than the rest Early of the country. Early 90s, yeah. So, so you have a wind, a year or two of wind at your back, but then, uh-oh, wind at your face. Correct. And now you have to restructure because you had a portfolio, not a, hey, we're starting a new merchant building business. Right. Yes, but we didn't have to really restructure. We just had to figure out how to keep the banks at bay. Yep. And one solution was to go public. Mm-hmm. So in 90, uh, I think it was 93, we went public and we took part of that money and paid off all the banks. Yeah. We had a kitty so we could, in effect, buy, buy what they call it, distressed real estate. Mm-hmm. So it was one of the great growth opportunities was uh, we were buying uh, properties at, uh, you know, 30, 40, 50 cents on the dollar. Right. So we were growing our speaker properties public company dramatically. Mm-hmm. And we were patient enough when you bought a property for, say, 40 cents on the dollar to reposition it, so on and so on. And in two or three years, it was worth 100 plus cents on the dollar. Right. So your accretion in terms of your business was huge. Yes. What? What? A couple of questions around that. One is you were one of the first companies in this iteration of REIT land to go public. Yes. So that was a little bit early in the process. Yes. And it was quite stressful. I bet it was. So what was the IPO process like for you? And then the process of, did you have to become a different person to be the CEO of a REIT than it was to be the partner of Speaker Properties in the Chrome? Yes. Instead of being a real estate entrepreneur and a real estate person working with partners, I had to become a public face. Yeah. Because basically we were always from a verbal and from a promotion standpoint, under the radar. Because mm-hmm. that's just, we. there was no no reason to go beat our chests. Mm-hmm. Well, 
I wouldn't say we beat our chest, but we had to become, in effect, a, uh, a public entity. And part of being a public entity is you wanted your stock to be well thought of. Mm-hmm. In order to do that, you had to sell, let's call it futures. Mm-hmm. Where are we going? What's good about us? And so on. Well, I had to become that public face, which mm-hmm. was not my personality. I was really more comfortable with just doing what we did and let our actions speak more than our words. But then we, I had to get on the trail and uh, do road shows and do uh, uh, investor conferences and all that sort of stuff. So it was a different role for me. And uh, I learned it, but it was not something that I would have chosen given the choice. But it really set the seeds for, our, in effect, our, our new public company. It's interesting. I think of you, I don't know you that well, but I know you publicly and a little bit privately. You seem like central casting for this in a way. And also the first generation of REIT leaders may have been more real estate entrepreneurial in how they approach the public. Yes. And you're so credible and thoughtful. And so I think there's a different way that 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 you embodied that role that really had just a huge amount of credibility. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Well, thank you. Thank you. But uh, anyway, it worked. Uh I mean, I even went to the extent of there's a National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts. Yeah. I became the head of that. Right. I mean, that that would have been the farthest thing from my (laughs) mind because I considered myself a... uh, a real estate person, not a uh, government-type uh, bureaucratic person. Absolutely. So talk about the organization. Talk about culture. Talk about development versus acquisitions as you grew. Well, development and acquisitions were mixed. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were opportunistic. Mm-hmm. If there was a development opportunity, we did it. Mm-hmm. It was all cost of capital. Mm-hmm. Where could we get the best best return on our capital? So that's how we made those decisions. And they would change uh, from one year to the next. Right. So that was just how we worked. But you were able to do both. You were had able the skill to do set to do either side. Our people were equipped to do either. We were setting up a management organization mm-hmm. because uh, we ended up, I think we started with pick a number, after we'd split with Crow, 6 million square feet total. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, by the time we sold the company, we were 42 million square feet. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of growth, a lot of it being office space, mm-hmm. which is much more management intensive. Our warehouse component was a, was a small, small portion of it. Well, it was, uh, we also had retail. Mm-hmm. I had a partner that was in charge of retail, mm-hmm. and he ran that part of the business and uh, so on. Culture, uh, I, I'm a big culture guy, and I've tried to work with our seniors business to, in effect, uh, incorporate the culture. A little more difficult because our seniors business has thousands of employees. Right. Whereas we had, let's call it 20 senior people in Mm -hmm. our organization as a public company. And, uh, you know, probably another several hundred, but you could, the, the, the culture trickled down in that size of an organization where it's much harder to do when you have thousands of employees in our seniors business. But the, basically the culture is share, compensate well. Mm-hmm. The organization is flat. We don't have a hierarchical type of organization. Also is uh, my philosophy is lead a balanced life. So if you're a workaholic, I think that's a dull, dull life and a dull person. I want a balanced person. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, family was always, cons- for me, first. It was my priority. And I instilled in all of our employees, I still do, that your family should come first. And, uh, for instance, if you have to take off to go to a, a Christmas play or go to a child's uh, soccer event, do it. Mm-hmm. I said, this will be a, just a small part of your life. I, I'm not concerned. We weren't concerned about getting the light, getting your job done. You have to get your job done, but, but don't feel you have to be there nine to five. Mm-hmm. Your family should, uh, should take priority from a time perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come back to balance. So I'll be curious about that. Talk about centralization versus decentralization. We hit that a little bit with seniors, but now talk about it at speaker property. Well, clearly uh, at uh, decentralization is our byword. Mm-hmm. We would give people a lot of authority mm-hmm. and a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And we said, hey, you do it. 
and you basically, uh, if you can succeed, great. Uh, but if you if you make a mistake, just don't make that mistake twice. Uh-huh. That was kind of our byword. Uh-huh. Don't make the same mistake twice. Right. And uh, we would share a lot among ourselves. We'd have uh, off-campus or off-site meetings and sharing information. And it was a, a, a very, uh, as I say, flat organization with a lot of sharing among our group. Uh-huh. I- at the time, uh, when you before you sold, that's when I moved to California and became a recruiter. So I talked to a lot of your people and still do. And they're, they're friends. One comment is your f- former partners are intensely loyal to each other and to you. And you build a network that really has a lasting impact on those folks. Mm-hmm. And decentralization gave them the broad tools and skill set to then go run their businesses, which many of them have done incredibly successfully. Yes. It also comes at a cost of scale. So there's a balance between centralization and decentralization at scale and in some of the public company requirements. And I think you guys, I'm going to be pushy, but I think you struggled a little bit with that balance as the company got really large. I would argue that if, de- if you decentralize in real estate, mm-hmm. the key to that was staying close to the customer, yep. the tenant. Mm-hmm. And if you centralize, it's much harder to stay close to the tenant. Mm-hmm. I argue that you can scale better and stay close to the customer by decentralization. It's interesting because I think in our business, we've seen it both ways. And you okay. saw Sam Zell, who, to whom you sold your company, had this centralization model that I don't think ever met its aspiration. You probably see it at Prologis where in some ways it does meet its aspiration. Well, that's because the ratio of, let's call it, management to customer Mm -hmm. is much smaller. In Mm -hmm. other words, I know Hamid uh, very well, Mm -hmm. and uh, he and I work together or been together for years. And with industrial, you don't, a lot of your customers are institutional. Mm -hmm. They're not individual. They're not small companies and so on, like a lot of our customers were. And so you can have a uh, customer, General Motors, and that customer is, uh, you can deal with one (laughs) customer in many cases rather than dozens and still have them in dozens of locations. Mm -hmm. I think there's a different component because of the type of business that industrial is. Mm -hmm. I think that makes sense. And in offices, I suggested the promise I don't know really delivered it does with some customers in some ways, but yeah. I don't care who owns my office. Sam never delivered much. on his promise that I can have great efficiencies right. the bigger I get. Mm-hmm. Well, you can if you decentralize and give your people authority. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, your decision-making time is lengthened, mm-hmm. and that's not good in a customer relationship. Yeah, certainly on the customer side, the capital side, it may be beneficial. Yes. And then in some of those things, like dealing with COVID, okay, someone needs to figure this out. Now let's implement it. Right. But it's it's, it's a balance. It's a fascinating part about this business. So talk about then selling the company and selling it to Sam. So what caused that? When did that happen? How did that feel? Well, we sensed that in 2000-whatever, that the markets were getting very toppy. Mm Mm-hmm especially Silicon Valley. We were concerned about the next chapter. Mm -hmm. So we said, uh, I never forget, sat with Craig Vaught and John Foster, my co-CEOs and myself, Mm -hmm. and we decided that this would probably be a good time to explore selling the company. And uh, we set out a six-month time frame, and we said, who could buy it? We Mm -hmm. said, Boston Properties or EOP. Those two. Well, we gave a subtle hint to each one, Mm -hmm. and we had what I'd call a phantom bidding war, Mm -hmm. telling the other that the other was involved, and so on and so on. Long story short, Sam would not be denied, Mm -hmm. because he is who he is. And this was right after Boston Properties got Embarcadero Center. Correct. Good timing. It was good timing. So so they were now here, mm-hmm. and we lost Boston, uh, excuse me, Embarcadero. We won it. We bid for it also, but uh, didn't see it quite as valuable as they did. Anyway, so Zell won. Mm-hmm. The great news is we took stock, and we had a very low basis. The, the I'm talking mm-hmm. now about the principals, not right. the shareholders. We took OP units, operating partnership units. So I had a very, very substantial gain 
And I got Sam to guarantee that he would never do anything to accelerate my gain, mm-hmm. i.e. sell to a third party, because he was a REIT. You see, you could take OP interests as a REIT. Right. But if you ever sold to a private company, Blackstone, right. it would trigger the gain. So how did that work? So I got Sam to guarantee me and my partners that if you ever accelerate our gain, you pay the tax. God bless you. God bless. We lucked out. And Sam, uh, you know, kind of as Tempery said, well, we won't ever sell the company. Mm-hmm. Well, we sold the company for this much. Right. And eight years, eight years, whatever. Right. Something later, I think it was more like five years, mm-hmm. Sam sold the Blackstone for another big whack. Right. And I'll never forget, I knocked on the door and said, congratulations, I'm really happy for you, but this is not a public company, it's a private company, therefore, uh, my tax is triggered. Yeah, big number. Big number. So I knocked on the door and said, uh, I'll expect to square up. Uh Well, Sam, smart guy that he is, transferred that, uh, call it obligation, to Blackstone. Blackstone. John Gray at that time was running Blackstone. Right. I never forget having a meeting in my conference room with John Gray and Uh attorneys on his side and attorneys on my side. Right. And I said, you can pay my taxes or I can litigate. Mm -hmm. And in the document, it said any litigation you pay for. So I said, you can pay my taxes and all that of all my partners or you can and pay litigation costs Mm -hmm. or you can just write me a check, Mm -hmm. us a check. Mm -hmm. He did the latter. And I forgot to ask you this before, but you had co-CEOs. Correct. So John and Craig. So yes. what was the model of your being chair and their being co-CEOs and how does that work? And you were then a young man when you did that transition to them. So yes. talk about that. Well, first of all, I wanted to give them opportunity. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had somewhat, shall I say, very skillful in finance, Craig was, with mm-hmm. Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And John was very skillful with people and mm-hmm. organizational. So I said, this is a wonderful, shall we call it, match. Mm-hmm. And plus, I didn't need any more. I mean, I checked off. I'd done a great uh, a thing by going public and so on. And I, I was doing the seniors business. Mm-hmm. I had other things I was doing so I could do that. And it was a win-win. Many egos don't allow that, and it's not because you need more. It's because you need to be that person you'd become, and it's hard to let go of that and share that. It was easy for me. Congratulations. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And then talk about, therefore, letting go of the company. And what was that like for you and the team and the different party after that? Well, it was difficult, Mm -hmm. mostly because of the people. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the people really enjoyed being with with us and the culture we had. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot of, let's call it, emotional response. Right. I'm so sorry. I said, well, you're going to be able to stay with EOP, and I'm sure they'll keep the same da-da-da-da, but I was hopeful anyway. But it was, it was uh, monumental for them. Mm-hmm. And I think you've talked to some of them subsequent. Right. And uh, it was, it was, we had a good thing going. Yeah. We had a really good thing going. So it was, uh, I was sad to sell it, but it was the right thing to do for the shareholders. Right. It was the right thing to do for the partners. Mm -hmm. The employees also got, shall I call it, um, financially rewarded. Mm -hmm. We spread that out. Right. We didn't just say, here you are, goodbye. Uh So it was, uh, it was the right thing to do, even though it was the hard thing to do. Yeah. I think it also comes back to that word balance, both letting go and becoming chair and sharing with co-CEOs and then selling the company. That word balance comes back to it because you must have been. I tried to be and, uh, you know, I still was not, and I'm still today, still, uh, quote unquote, engaged. I don't call it work. Mm -hmm. I call it engaged Mm -hmm. because I just love doing it. So let's come back to the work part in a second, but talk about those other things that keep you balanced that aren't work and that make you special that way. Not you special, but you know what I mean. Well, first of all, I have a wonderful wife and four children and uh, 15 grandchildren. Congratulations. So that's yeah. that's, <laughs> that's busy. That's busy right now. <laughs> I have a lot of other interests. Uh-huh. I like to do a lot of outdoor interests, mm-hmm. skiing, hunting, fishing, 
I race uh, car, uh, vintage race cars. I like to keep physically fit. Mm-hmm. So I just, I do a lot of things. I, my days are very full. Mm-hmm. And yet I still, whenever I'm in town, I like being uh, here because I'm still engaged business-wise. Mm-hmm. And you had started the seniors housing business well before Speakers Properties Correct. sold. So talk about how you got into that, why you got into that. And were there other things alongside Speaker oh, Properties? Yeah. I did other little things too, but the seniors is obviously persisted. My mom and dad came to me in the late 80s. Mm. And they said, we're getting of the age. What should we do with our house? Where should we live? And so on. I said, I don't know, but I'll go look. Right. Well... I looked and I said, there's an opportunity here. <laughs> I said, this whole real estate shall I say, sector is sorely undersupplied, number one. Number two, the demographics, you didn't have to be a genius to figure out that this was going to get better. Mm-hmm. So long story short, through another story, which is not necessary, I bought a, uh, I took over a property in Orange County. Mm-hmm. It was an old oil field, <laughs> so that was yeah complicated. And I built our first community called Morningside there, uh-huh. and I still own it. We still own it. Uh-huh. And do you do this with your son? Was that part of this? No, my son, who is now 50, 51 years old, he about 15 some odd years ago graduated from business school. Uh-huh. He'd been in the investment business. And the then CEO of the public uh, of uh, the, pri- the seniors company hired him. Mm. So he kind of did everything from started at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And then he worked up. And then that CEO, Rick, uh, retired. Mm-hmm. And Warren, ste- Warren, my son, stepped in and is now the managing partner. Okay, that's great. And talk about the other things that have you engaged. You said it's, I think, engaged or involved, not running, leading, but work really matters and the intellectual elements of this business are hard to let go of. Well, I just enjoy the, it's like, it's a game. It's a giant game. It's a Mm -hmm. challenge. Mm -hmm. And I work very closely with our seniors people. Mm -hmm. The capital necessary for the seniors business is very substantial. Yeah. So if you're doing a four or five hundred million dollar project, mm-hmm. you need to put up a hundred million cash or more. Mm-hmm. So I'm very involved with banks, and uh, because we only finance these properties short term while we build them, mm-hmm. then after that the entrance fees pay them off and we own them free and clear. So I'm very involved in financing the properties. Mm-hmm. And uh, from a treetops level, I'm involved in operations, mostly on a personnel basis. You know, who do we hire and who do we promote, all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And are there other involvements that you have in commercial real estate and or, you have multiple choice question, observation on where our business is at today? Okay. Yes, I'm involved in the hotel business through my nephew, Tyler Morse, MCR Development, Mm -hmm. the fourth largest hotel owner-operator. I've been working with him for for quite a long time. Um, Notably, he has a hotel in New York City called the uh, TWA Hotel. Oh, he just did that. Well, he just did. I mean, he did it probably three, four, five years ago. Uh But I've invested with him. Mm -hmm. I'm investing with my nephew, T-Speaker, in apartments. Mm Mm-hmm. So I've invested with, uh, I'm passive in all of these deals, but I pick people. Mm-hmm. And if the people are right, I'm happy to invest with them and see them flourish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd want a passive investor who knows their stuff. Yes. So that's well, a big deal. Well, they get, they get some advice they appreciate and some they don't. <laughs> of course. Sometimes you do. A- any observations, particularly in the office business today and what that might look like with COVID, did COVID accelerate things that were going to happen anyhow? Let's talk about that a little bit. Well, I think, yes, COVID did accelerate the work from home, obviously, um, movement, as did commutes and and a lot of other challenges. And I am very pleased that I don't own uh, office buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, this project that we're in right now, I mean, it's uh, Sand Hill Road is fabulous. Right. But all these people who are Woodside, Atherton, Menlo Park residents, they can work from home and they've proven it. Right. So I'm glad I don't own a lot of office space because I think it's going to be problematic. Yeah. I bet problematic. I bet 
the, it does not end, but when it stabilizes to a place, it'll certainly be a different place than it was before the pandemic. Yes, I agree. In a big way. And yeah. our cities will be different because of that too. Right. So last question is always career advice, but I'm going to ask this in two parts. So one is advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. And the second is for a young entrepreneur who's starting a real estate business. Well, I'll go for the uh, first question first. Cool. In order to differentiate yourself when mm -hmm. you're young, I think you have to just be the absolute very best in a small, pick an area that you really feel you can be good. Because then you can differentiate yourself. Is that area function or is that area product type? It can both? be either. Okay. It can be anything. Just mm -hmm. anything that you can say, I can do this as well or better than anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, rather than try to be too many things to too many people or to too many, too many uh, uh, endeavors. Because then you will be in a position to, shall we say, grow mm -hmm. and to expand. If you if you can perfect one particular area or product type, you you can transfer that knowledge and that let's call it process to to another, mm -hmm. and you can grow yourself. But I think the mistake many people make is that they try to do too many things to 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 learn too broadly. Mm -hmm. Now you have to learn broadly, but I think you have to uh, apply on a more specific basis. It's interesting as a recruiter. I believe that one hundred percent. You broaden later after you have foundation, and the mm -hmm. foundation has to be pretty stable of knowledge. Yes. Because then you got your stuff, and you yeah. go from the stuff to this broad thing that real leaders have to go broad. Right. What about for entrepreneurs, someone starting a business? Well, you better have a firm foundation in whatever business you're starting. Right. I wouldn't start it from scratch. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, even uh, you see it in Silicon Valley. You don't go and just start a company because you think it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. You better have the right engineering or the right background. Mm -hmm. So foundation is, is critical. Foundation and uh, reputation. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I've always felt culturally is you only have one reputation. Mm -hmm. One reputation. And that can be destroyed with one act. Mm -hmm. For instance... Uh, letting uh, a property be foreclosed. Mm -hmm. Tramalloy said, I'm never going to let a property be foreclosed. Well, he wasn't able to live up to that. Mm -hmm. And so from then on, anybody can look and say, well, he will give it back if it's convenient. Mm -hmm. We have, and I'm proud to say, never, ever given a property back. Mm -hmm. Ever. And I've done thousands of real estate things, and I've been through some tough times. But if you meet your obligations, that's what helped us go public. Mm -hmm. If you've always met your obligations, mm -hmm. your reputation is intact, and that can uh, pay benefits in the long run. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because you hadn't used those words before. We talked a lot about partnership, sharing, generosity of team, but that reputation is exactly what comes out of that. Right. So they're all together. Yes. Hey, Ned, thank you very much for getting together. This Matt, a great conversation. my pleasure. These are questions in old history that are fun to recollect. I appreciate your taking the time and selecting me. Thank you. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, Take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.